This is Paul Adamson, and welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of my online magazine, Encompass. I chat informally with personalities from a wide variety of backgrounds on a wide variety of subjects. If you like this podcast, you can go to the magazine's website, encompass-europe.com, or any of the main platforms for free access to all the podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My guest is Gillian Tett. Gillian Tett is the chairman of the US editorial board and editor-at-large at the Financial Times. Her latest book is called Anthrovision, How Anthropology Can Explain Business and Life. Before we talk about your book, uh, Gillian, let me first of all ask you your sort of personal journey. You have a PhD in social anthropology. How did somebody with a PhD in social anthropology end up at the Financial Times writing about business and finance? Well, I think that's a very polite way of saying, how come you're so weird? <laughs> and to be honest, I've had that question thrown at me all my life. And that's really one thing, reason that prompted me to write this book. Because, you know, there, it is pretty unusual to have a background in cultural anthropology. In my case, I have a PhD based on fieldwork in Soviet Tajikistan, which is just north of Afghanistan on the map. If you visualize a picture you've seen about Afghanistan from the news with big snowy mountains and you add in electricity and take out black veils on the women, that's Tajikistan. And I lived there as an anthropologist and studied Tajik wedding rituals for um, a year and a half of my life. And that's not an obvious way to then go on and write about international finance and um, markets and economies and politics. Um, but I happen to believe that they are intimately connected because at the end of the day, we're all human, we're all tribal, we all inherit cultural assumptions and patterns from our surroundings, which deeply influence us, whether we're working in Tajikistan or Brussels or Washington or Wall Street, and we can all benefit from thinking about those cultural and social patterns and essentially recognizing the importance and role they play in our lives. Well, as you know, you have two weekly columns in the FT, one more classically on business and finance, and the second one, which is basically on anthropology. I always have a little uh, game with myself when I read your second column, how many words in before the word anthropology appears. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, you... I mean, many people say, oh, stop banging on about anthropology. I, do, I will say, though, that, you know, no one ever said that about economics or economists right. banging right. on about economics. And there's so little anthropology explicitly cited in the mainstream media that I'm trying to sort of balance out the um, balance out the picture a bit, I think. Well, you're, you're a very good sort of ambassadress for anthropology, and you say it is not what people like to think it is, the study of weird other people who are exotic. It's actually also very much in our own backyard. I mean, do you think that uh, there's a bigger appreciation, a greater appreciation out there of, of, of anthropology and its impact on our daily lives? Well, I think until recently, anthropology was completely underappreciated because most people thought it was really like Indiana Jones for <laughs> academics. Um, it was basically a bunch of people who went off and wanted to have wild adventures <laughs> and go to far-flung parts of the world and study exotic rituals or dig up bones. And, you know, I can understand why people have that stereotype because, in fact, anthropology did start off very much in that vein in the 19th century. But um, 20th century anthropology really flipped around dramatically in that it went from 
being about white people looking at so-called natives in far-flung parts of the former British Empire um, in a very patronizing and racist and imperialist way. It went from that into actually being a bastion of anti-racism and anti-imperialist views because it really started to argue that um, you can't sit there and assume that you know Western white men have the monopoly <laughs> of on civilization that they can sit there and be superior and assume that everyone else is inferior. Um, that is a hundred percent wrong. We can all learn from each other. Each culture is valid, and we benefit by being humble and looking at each other. So anthropology went from being racist and Indiana Jones to really saying, let's try and study other cultures with respect. And out of that came the idea that actually, if we're looking at other cultures, we should also be looking at ourselves and really flipping the lens. And today, anthropologists work as much in the Western world as they do the non-Western world, looking at modern settings. And although those kind of principles haven't really seeped into the mainstream conversation much until recently, events like the 2008 financial crisis really showed finance um, world why it pays to look at culture, why actually ignoring incentives and tribal patterns inside big financial institutions is a mistake. I think that events like the rise of populism um, and political um, upheavals in the Western world have made people think about the sense of identity and the fact that you know, people don't always share common um, senses of, you know, goals and political interpretations and language. I think the pandemic has made us all think about the rituals that influence our lives and how we structure work. So for all those reasons, I think that actually culture is becoming a lot more interesting now to many people than it was a few years ago. When you say that anthropology is all about looking at the world from the bottom up, do you, but do you think our political leaders, certainly in the West, uh, with their top-down uh, prescriptive approach to, to governing, uh, have got it, tasted the Kool-Aid? I think one thing that's marked the last few decades out is that, um, that we have developed a lot of intellectual tools to make sense of the world, which policymakers and corporate leaders use, which are very useful to a degree, but they have all um, suffer from a fatal flaw, which is they're bounded and they're top down. So if you think about economic models, that's defined by what you put into the model and the edges of the model, and it tends to be used in a top down kind of way. The same is true of corporate balance sheets. Um, the same is true of big data sets and some aspects of medical science and many aspects of computer science. And the problem with that approach is that while it can be incredibly useful at making sense of what's going on. It's basically suffers from the fact that if things start to change in the context of that model or balance sheet or big data set, if the, you know, what's happening outside the edges of that model shift, then that means that the model may get less, less useful. Um, the analogy I use is a bit like somebody walking through a dark wood at night with a compass. You don't want to throw the compass away because it can tell you roughly which way to go. Um, in the same way that the economic model can tell you roughly what's happening and where to go. But if you walk through that wood and just stare down at the dial all the time, you're probably going to trip over a tree root or walk into mm -hmm. a tree. So there are times when you need to look up and away from the model and look around and go from tunnel vision to lateral vision. And you need to recognize that taking a top-down view of the world um, can tell you a lot, but not everything. Sometimes having a bottom-up worm's eye view is really helpful. 
And one of the things I'm trying to argue in this book is not that, you know, anthropology has the answers, you know, the idea of trying to look at the world bottom up, look at culture and context is going to tell you everything because it's not. But it provides a really useful check and balance to the other intellectual tools that we use. And it's something I think is really badly needed right now as the context around our other intellectual tools changes rapidly. Well, you mentioned the, the pandemic, and it, it's a bit of a cliche already that life will never be the same again after the pandemic, whenever that wonderful moment occurs. But you already see signs that this tunnel vision, which you think is not such much a good idea, will be replaced by a more lateral vision amongst our leaders. I'm hoping that we have a rethink about how we navigate the world as a result of the pandemic. Um, for several reasons, partly on a micro level, you know, we've all been forced to pay more attention to the rituals and rhythms and patterns um, that shape our lives. All the stuff that we used to ignore about how we have work-life distinctions, how we structure our time, how we interact with colleagues, what's the point of an office anyway, all of that we can't take for granted because when we went into COVID, we all suffered culture shock, if you like, and we're suffering it again as we go back into real life, hopefully. So on a micro level, it's really an amazing time to think about our cultural patterns. But on a wider level, one of the things that we learned in the course of fighting the pandemic is that you can't beat a pandemic just with medical science. You need medical science. Um, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Because if you try to just use medical science, um, you essentially won't get anywhere because you need to have behavioral science too. You need to persuade people to either change their behavior and stay at home during a pandemic and stop transmitting um, the pandemic. Um, and then you need to, as we're now discovering, persuade them to get the vaccines to actually beat it at the end. Um, and in a country like America, where they're now drowning in medical science, they have all the vaccines and all the logistical science they need to get the population, population vaccinated. And they have the computer science to track whether or not it's happening. The piece they're falling down on is the persuasion element. So the pandemic has shown us why you need to blend social, medical, computer science together to be effective. And exactly that same message can be extrapolated to looking at climate change and to looking at many areas of public policy today um, in a way that's you know, hopefully going to create better policy making. Will it? I don't know. We as humans have an amazing propensity to learn a lesson and then forget it five minutes later. <laughs> and I'm hoping that some of these lessons stick this time around. Can we move on then, if it's not too much of a, a, a jolt, to the, the, the data economy and the, the role of the, the, the big tech companies? You're quite critical about their, their growing influence and how you say that both regulators and economists have to change the way they, they look at this particular branch of, the, of the, the, the economy. Could you maybe go into more detail about what you mean by that? Absolutely. I mean, I believe passionately that big tech and the world of Silicon Valley needs to embrace social science and anthropology, um, partly for the obvious reasons that we need to spend more time thinking about the people who are producing tech tools, the coders, um, the engineers, um, and what kind of biases they are or are not actually inserting into the, how they construct it. We need to think about the applications of tech and how they interact with society how it's changing us. Um, that's all quite well known. And we also need to think about some of the ways that techies are trained through their own um, professional um, education to think in linear tunnels unilaterally 
um, and often to screen out some of the bigger questions. And one of the great things that anthropology can teach any adherent is the need to jump out of yourself and look back at yourself as others might see you. And financiers were very bad at doing that in the run up to 2008. Techies have been very bad at doing that too. And so ideas which seem obvious and normal to people working in tech who are trained in engineering can seem very amoral and very peculiar to everyone else. But the other area where I feel very strongly we need to use anthropology to make sense of big tech is in terms of data and privacy. Because I think that the debate around the privacy scandals to do with groups like Cambridge Analytica have really missed a crucial point, which is that what's happened as tech companies have hoovered up data is not so just a case of them taking our data for free, which is how it's usually described. It's actually part of an exchange of swap, a barter trade, if you like, where people have been getting free services in exchange for giving up that data. And you might say, well, why does that matter? And I think it matters enormously because the reason we say things are happening for free is because that really means there's an absence of money. And we don't have a way to express that other than in the negative, i.e. for free, because we tend to assume that everything that matters in life is mediated through money, because that's been the driving force of how the economists and economic profession imagine the world. And the fact is, anthropology has always known that actually there are other exchanges beyond money which bind societies together. And what's happening in the tech world right now is a classic example of that because the scale of exchange of data for services is enormous. And yet it's almost entirely outside economist models for how they imagine the economy. Um, it's often outside investors models for how they value companies. And antitrust lawyers often have problems incorporating it in their models because in America, antitrust is measured by the movement of consumer prices. So I'm saying, well, instead of talking about the swap in terms of a negative, i.e. the absence of money, or just ignoring it altogether, um, which is what normally happens, we need to actually actively draw attention to this swap and call it a barter trade because that's a positive label. And when you start recognizing there's a barter trade involved, several things happen. Firstly, you recognize how important it is. Secondly, you then have to ask, well, okay, do people actually want to remediate this with money or are they happy with a barter trade? My strong suspicion is most people want to keep with barter because it's so efficient, but they want to change the terms of trade of the barter trade. Um, and that means doing things like giving consumers more power to renegotiate the barter trade, more transparency about what's going on and more choice and the choice really comes from having a, um, a choice of who you cut your barter trade with. And the only way to do that is to have portable data. So I think, for example, the tech sector should face the same demands as the financial sector faces, which is to make it easy for people to swap providers. You know, banks have to take the onus for people changing which bank they use. Um, with it, if you change bank accounts, the bank has to move your, move your money. You don't have to. And the same thing happens to ha has to happen with tech and data. Well, I think to be fair, the, the counter argument would be surely that the consumer is is not is not being hoodwinked. He or she is aware that this part, as you say, is taking place, and maybe offered the possibility to 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 sell their data, and then in exchange for buying the services, they would not be that enthusiastic. So, how do you think this kind of change of 
of the of the nature of the transaction could be affected? Well, I think that first of all, there hasn't been as much a focus on the fact that people are getting free services in exchange for giving up their data. Um, and I do think, on one level, the tech companies do have an understandable reason to feel indignant that that second part of the trade has been obscured. Um, and that, you know, it is written there that actually you are giving up your data. Um, people have often ignored that, um, but now there is more attempt to make sure people understand that when they click onto the, um, on, onto those little kind of things that come up, come up on the screen. So that's good. Um, the problem is though, as always, there isn't a choice. There isn't an active market in how to get services from different providers. And that's where the system's falling down, that you don't have active competition about where to go. Um, and the only way to say to create that competition is to have proper data portability um, and to have you know, a system um, essentially enabling people to choose. There is a separate issue, which is that the people who are providing the services, you need to have some level of competition actually promoted on the search engines. And that really comes down to questions like Google and people like that. So, and the question of how you control the search algorithm. So that's also very much part of it and part of the transparency issue. Okay, I, I want to finish off, Julian, by, by you promise not to groan by talking about Brexit but as a way to gently move into that wonderful topic. Uh, again, some, some words quoting back to you. Uh, you say the world is a, a glorious kaleidoscope of different cultures uh, uh, and we can all learn from different cultures and diversity is a source of innovation and we should maybe there's value in celebrating cultural differences. But you also say that, which I found really fascinating and hadn't really thought about, Cultures are not fixed in stone. Uh, we're not prisoners to them. What, what do you mean by that? And could you give an example? Because it seems quite a broad concept. Well, I feel very strongly that we need to get beyond thinking about cultures being like boxes um, mm. or trying to rank them hierarchically, because that was very much the 19th century imperialist view. Um, and the reality is wrong. You can't rank cultures hierarchically, some being sort of you know, superior to others. Mm. And you can't assume that cultures are fixed in stone. Um, on the contrary, it's a constantly moving, evolving uh, thing. It's a, it's a spectrum of difference. I like to sometimes imagine it as being a bit like a slow moving river in that different you know, streams come in and out and sometimes the banks of the river are clear cut and sometimes they're not. Sometimes it's a lot more muddy. And that's threatening to some people. Um, it's also glorious because you can say at the same time, you know, I have a cultural identity. There are elements of it that matter deeply to me and I'm proud of. And we shouldn't run away from that, by the way. Far too long, the global elite try to downplay local identities and they matter It's part of our, who we are. But just because we have an identity doesn't mean we have to be exclusionary and define ourselves in angry opposition to others. And the story I tell in the book um, is of Kit Kat bars. It's a slightly <laughs> trivial example of this, but Kit Kat started life as a totally British product. It was a brown chocolate business <laughs> marketed under the term, have a break, have a Kit Kat. Um, it got sold over the, all over the world as a British biscuit. Um, it turned up in Japan, did not do well. And then the Swiss company Nestle, which had bought the original British company, which made it, noticed that sales of Kit Kat bars were spiking in Kyushu um, around the turn of the year. And it looked into why that was happening. It realized that local Japanese teenagers had um, created a craze for giving each other Kit Kat bars at exams because the phrase Kit Kat sounds like a Japanese phrase, kitogatsu in Japanese, which means we shall overcome. Now, you could have sat there as a Swiss or British person and God, that's so weird, those weird Japanese, you know, and just laughed about it. 
But what Nestle did to its credit um, with the Japanese managers was try to lean into it. And so they started marketing KitKat as a Japanese prayer tool. Because in, in the Shinto tradition, you have these prayer tokens from Shinto shrines that you take as good luck tokens. And within three or four years, 50% of Japanese teenagers were taking these red chocolate Kit Kat bars into their exams and almost praying to them um, for good luck. And then they lent into it even more and they started creating Kit Kats in local flavors like soy sauce Kit Kats and wasabi um, and matcha and Hokkaido cheese in all different colors. And then what happened was that the Kit Kat bars became viewed as a Japanese souvenir for tourists going to Japan. And then the final denouement happened because Kit Kat green tea matcha bars got sold back into Britain as a Japanese Kit Kat bar. Um, they were actually made in Germany, in German factories, and they were actually quite popular amongst British consumers. So at that point you have to say, well, is Kit Kat British? Is it Swiss? Is it German, because it's made in Germany, or is it Japanese? And the answer is it's all of the above. Um, it has a distinctive identity but it's actually an extraordinarily powerful sign of how cultures can change. And you can get innovation and creativity out of that. And, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if more politicians couldn't just embrace that message from Kit Kat and stop defining culture as something that's always in opposition to each other and recognize that identity matters, but actually it is something which can and should change and be more um, creative through collisions. Well, at the risk of being a bit parochial, let's try and finish on, on Brexit, Gillian. Um, uh, you have the honesty and self-awareness to admit in the book you did not see Brexit coming. Quite a few people, I think, in the same group as you. Um, but what about this idea, this narrative, now you hear a lot of the United Kingdom, that we are in the middle of, or maybe the beginning of, culture wars, uh, which are being deliberately fermented by various interests. We, can, you know, we all know who I'm talking about. And is that, a, is that a legacy of Brexit? And that will that be carrying on for quite some time? Or were there already telltale signs before the referendum five years ago that these kind of culture wars were being executed? Well, I think one of the things I would say about what's happening right now is that people like me need to employ more anthrovision. And I forgot my anthropology in early 2016 um, because I forgot to listen to people who are different from me humbly and to actually try to have a ground up view on how the world was working. Look at it through a worm's eye view of listening rather than just imposing my top down assumptions. And as somebody who is, you know, proudly global, has lived all over the world, um, I assumed that Brexit was an appallingly bad idea because that's how many people who are educated global elites tend to think. And I hadn't spent a lot of time actually listening humbly to other people in the UK. And, and I completely predicted it wrong. I assumed that you know, the vote would be, it would be voted down. And I also failed to see something else, which is that there is a tremendous amount of arrogance on the part of people like myself to assume that command of words gives you power and prestige automatically. Mm. And you know, I think it's one of the few acceptable areas of snobbery, if you like, um, in Western culture, that being educated gives you the right to boss other people around. And again, since I work in a profession where we live and die by words, I absolutely was victim of that arrogance and lazy assumptions and tribalism. And what you've seen through both Brexit, but also particularly through the rise of Donald Trump, and I write about this in my book, mm -hmm. is really, you know, people tapping into 
the frustration that parts of the population feel about that and the arrogance on the part of people like me um, and using nonverbal performative um, communication styles to connect with people and to get political support. And that was really Donald Trump's um, special, specialism. Now, when it comes to what's happened in the aftermath of Brexit, having got Brexit so badly wrong, I think we need to recognize that there's economic insecurity going on. There's um, people who are trying to build their power bases by whipping up um, you know, their supporters by defining themselves against others tapping into the, all the resentments against you know, the globalized elite, things like that, which can be ironic given that some of the people doing it are part of the globalized mm, elite, yeah, but yeah. there we go. Um, and I think we're gonna see more of that going forward because we live in a you know, scary, disorientating time. And when that happens, it's very easy to cling to symbols um, that feel familiar and for anything which gives a false sense of security. One other thing I will point out is that pandemics throughout history um, have been associated with xenophobia. Um, there's a lot of anthropological research, which I cite in my book, looking at how and why that is. People always, almost always assume that sort of germs come from outside mm. and pollution comes from outside. And we have to shut the doors to keep our own people pure inside um, to the point where, you know, Donald Trump was obsessed with calling COVID the Chinese mm. invasion. Right and yet totally lax about what was happening inside his own backyard to the point where the White House became a source of infection. So again, that's playing into what we're seeing right now, I suspect. Oh, well, unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Julian, Ted, thank you very much for your time. And thank you for listening, and thanks for your interest. Thank you.